Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So I wanted to uh, talk tonight <clears throat> about the Buddha Dharma. Is this on? Just one out. The Buddha Dharma as a, a path of happiness. It is on. I disappeared in my mind. <laughs> it doesn't seem as loud as it was a moment ago. Uh, the Buddha Dharma as a path of happiness. And I um, want to give you a, a sense of uh, why I got into writing about joy and uh, teaching a course on joy. Uh, because uh, I, at times... The, the, the Dharma has been a path of tremendous inspiration and opening and uh, deep heart opening, feeling the fullness of, of my life. And at other times, uh, it's gotten very serious. And I got, as Spring was saying before, uh, sometimes this can get serious. For a period in my practice, I became dead serious. Emphasis on the dead. (laughs) And I lost my joy. And after going through a a good chunk of time um, where I didn't realize uh, consciously but on some level, I had, uh, my spirit had been deadened a bit. When I got back into um, reclaiming my um, natural way of being, uh, I wanted to take a look and see uh, where I had misunderstood the teachings. And I became very interested in seeing what the Buddha did say about happiness you know, we, as I think I mentioned earlier, with all the emphasis on there's suffering, there's a cause of suffering, there's an end of suffering, and there's a path leading to the end of the suffering, sometimes uh, we can forget that the Buddha said, go for the highest happiness. And in the, uh, the opening line of uh, the Dalai Lama's book, The Art of Happiness, the first line is, the purpose of life is to be happy. It's a great way to start a book. You know? <laughs> the purpose of life is to be happy. Not just happiness is a good idea. The purpose of life is to be happy. What could he mean by that? Well, if we discover where true happiness lies and we find it for ourselves, it becomes the gift that we can give to everybody else. But um, I'm not the only one who could 
get into a, a misunderstanding of the, the teachings and uh, get into a more serious mode and forget that. <clears throat> this is from Ajahn Sumedho, who's uh, one of the most respected um, masters in this lineage of Theravadan Buddhism. He says, uh, sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. (laughs) Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on anicca, dukkha, and anatta. The impermanence, the uh, unsatisfactoriness of life, and the, uh, the selfless nature of reality. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics, rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is true joy, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth beauty, and goodness delight us. In them we find joy. Now, it's understandable how there can be a misinterpretation in some of the teachings. And and where I uh, perhaps went uh, off into a direction that that wasn't so helpful, at least this is my understanding of the teachings, Uh, There are some concepts that can be uh, taken in different ways. And I want to share with you a couple of of them. One is um, the concept of samvega. Samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A. It's a very uh, important understanding but it could be misunderstood as well. This is one definition of Samvega uh, translated by um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, Tan Jeff. Mm. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived a chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. You read that, it's not easy to get into the idea, oh, go out and have fun and enjoy life. (laughs) It is a very important concept, not just something to, to, be, to be avoided, 
but the operative words in that definition are the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. And the way we normally live life, we have the idea that uh, more is better, sooner is even better than that, and we are misguided in our understanding of where happiness lies. want to share with you um, Exhibit A in this. Uh, I, I write about this in the book, but, um, but here you can see the, uh, the ad in full color. Um, this is an ad that somebody gave to me a while ago called The Gold Shivers. Beautiful woman, draped in gold, very happy, of course. Here's the ad. The Gold Shivers, that electric excitement that thrilling, new, thrilling warmth. Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. Here's, it's a two-pager. You can get to see her on the, while I read the other one. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. <laughs> Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. <laughs> it's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. You might not care at all for jewelry, but you read that and say, gee, I want some too. <laughs> now you might say, I know better than that. That's just, madis- that's just mad men trying to play games with my mind. It works. That's the scary part. It works. Just like Coca-Cola pays a few million dollars for 30 seconds of your attention on, say, a Super Bowl, so that you can see an image of somebody drinking a bottle of Coke with a big smile on their face, and it links it up. Yes, that's where happiness lies. It's not like they're saying, we're going to introduce people to a new drink that they've never met before called Coca-Cola. They know you know Coca-Cola. They just want one more time to get that in your brain so that you link it up. This is happiness. And according to one study several years ago, around the year 2000, um, the average American at that time, and I think it's much, uh, much greater at this point, the average American uh, received 3,000 messages like this every day. Now we live in hyperlink reality and it's much more than that, I would imagine. Just bombarded. That's our continual bombardment. Unless you come to Spirit Rock (laughs) where the big hit is what's for lunch. Okay, (laughs) That's it. 
you receive maybe one message, you know, or every now and then, when is that bell going to ring? That will make me happy. So that's life as it's normally lived. Samvega, when truly understood, is seeing, wait, there's got to be another way. Is this all there is? And when you are deeply touched by the power of that, you want to be looking for some other meaning in life. And that leads to the the um, corollary of, of some vega, which is called pasada, which is clarity and serene confidence. It's what keeps some vega from turning into despair, a clear sense of the predicament and the way out of it, leading to something beyond aging, illness, death, and at the same time feeling confident that this way will work. When we are moved in that way, saying, yes, I found something that will really lead to, new, to, to genuine happiness, we are uh, overcome with um, or filled with faith and delight. But we can easily get stuck in the message of Samvega. I remember going to um, one retreat with this Burmese master who every night would give a, a talk for three months, this was, And every night he'd say, uh, may you speedily get off the wheel of samsara and know the bliss of nibbana. And he was saying it from a deep, compassionate place. But my mind heard, get out of here as fast as you can because it's not okay to enjoy life. There's another teaching that also can be misunderstood, the teaching on Nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, Nibida, which uh, is sometimes translated as revulsion, particularly with regard to this body and mind and the others around. The five aggregates, which is a way of uh, talking about this mind-body process. In some translations, the the teaching says one should have revulsion for the five aggregates, for the body and the mind, or one should cultivate utter disgust for the body and mind, these five aggregates. Not a very inspiring picture if you're trying to learn to love yourself, right? But that's just in the translation, a more um, accurate translation, one that makes a lot of sense is the word nibida as um, disenchantment. One should have disenchantment with regard to the body, to these five aggregates. One should break the enchantment, break the spell that we're normally under when we are entranced by our, uh, the visions before us, the people that we're attracted to, the things that we, that we like that are shiny and we think that's going to do it for us or our own, um, 
loving ourself in, in a way that says, hey, pretty cool, check it out, you know. One should cultivate disenchantment at the same time as Deborah was so beautifully pointing to really love this being, this perfect expression of life, who you are. So it's easy to see how those and other translations and interpretations can lead to a sense that um, this is serious practice and it's not okay to really cultivate joy. But as I said at the very uh, start of the retreat, joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment. It's one of the four divine abodes, as you probably see if you're in the Mudita building. Ah, I'm in joy. One of the, one of the uh, concentration factors. Lots of different uh, expressions of well-being, from gladness to rapture to bliss to contentment to joy. Thich Nhat Hanh has a famous line. He says, suffering is not enough. This is somebody who's seen a lot of suffering in his life. He says, yes, it's very important to understand suffering, but that's not the whole picture. And so he says, practice smiling, practice opening to all the, the beauty inside of you. And I got stuck in this, as I said, for a while, and what, what really um, kind of broke my spell uh, after some time was visiting a, um, a teacher in India, not a Buddhist teacher, but a teacher who loved uh, the Buddha. He was an Advaita teacher uh, named uh, Punjaji, H.W.L. Punja, also uh, known as Papaji. And uh, he would be radiant with love and uh, and joy and shining and just uh, laughing all the time. And he would talk about emptiness a lot, you know, which is one of the main concepts in, uh, in Buddha Dharma. And I would ask him lots of questions, but when I went, I was fortunate enough to go before he became very big and uh, like hordes came uh, shortly after I, I, I saw him for that first time. But I, ha- I was there for a few weeks and he said, give me all your questions. You know, and I'd say, well, I, do you have any more questions? I have one more. Give me your questions, right? And I, he thought I, he exhausted all my questions. And at the very last day that I was with him, he said, do you have any more questions? I said, Punjaji, I have one, one more question that's been um, on my mind. He's, I said... Um, you know, when, when Buddhist teachers talk about emptiness, it's so reverential and can seem very serious, the profound understanding of emptiness. But when you talk about emptiness, you're laughing, you're radiant, you're having such a good time. What gives? Why is your emptiness so much more fun than, than ours? <laughs> It's basically what I asked him, you know. And, uh, and he said, um, 
this is a good question. He said, sometimes when people have associated the deep understanding of freedom with stillness, as on the meditation cushion, they can be misled into thinking that the stillness and the silence is where we truly can connect with emptiness. And then all the uh, activity and appearances and aliveness of life seem to be not as important or profound. And so there's a subtle rejection of appearances and going for the, the stillness and the silence. He says, my emptiness... I'll see if I can channel them a little bit. You know. <laughs> my, empty, my emptiness rejects nothing. Nothing is rejected from my emptiness. It includes happiness, sorrow, suffering, joy, love, confusion, anger, peace. Nothing is rejected from my emptiness. And then he laughed. <laughs> <laughs> And it woke me up. And it made me remember that's, that's my deep understanding of, of life, that it all belongs. And as the famous saying goes, samsara and nirvana are one. But one can easily get misled into thinking stillness and silence is where it's at. So... This is actually what started me looking back to what did the Buddha actually say about happiness? And he said in one famous discourse, the one that hooked me 39 years ago, was when he said, don't trust anyone, don't believe anyone, don't believe the authorities, don't believe the teachers, don't believe the scriptures, don't believe the Buddha, don't believe views that you prefer, but look for yourself, and when you know for yourself, this leads to suffering, these things lead to suffering and uh, unhappiness, then you should abandon them if you don't want to suffer. And when you know for yourselves, this thing, these things incline the mind towards welfare, incline the mind towards happiness, those are the words, then you should follow them. So he said, take a look and see where real happiness lies. And as I said Earlier in the, uh, in the retreat, the, the teachings that particularly struck me were the ones on weakening unwholesome states and cultivating wholesome states because all the wholesome states are states of well-being, love, compassion, equanimity, patience, um, kindness, generosity. They're all states of expansion and they not only feel good in the moment, but they create the conditions for the mind to be at ease and relaxed for the deepest kind of happiness to arise. 
So, okay, cultivating wholesome states, weakening unwholesome states, and tuning into the gladness, remember that discourse I mentioned, the gladness that accompanies those wholesome states, and that over time you can practice, you can incline the mind towards well-being. As he said, that line, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Or as modern neuroscience says, neurons that fire together, wire together. That's how it works. So, looking at these different wholesome states, um, this is what we're doing here. But I wanted tonight to talk a little bit more about the Buddha's teachings, in particular, uh, the the fundamental teaching of the Four Noble Truths, but I want to put it into context of what we're doing here. As probably most of you know, the Four Noble Truths is what the Buddha discovered under the Bodhi tree at the age of 35, which led to his awakening and spent the next 45 years one way or another sharing what he discovered under that tree. The Four Noble Truths are, as I said a little bit earlier, there is suffering, there is a cause of suffering, there is an end to suffering, and there is a path leading to the end of suffering. But one could put it another way, And I just recently heard uh, from a friend uh, who uh, is in a group that I meet with every couple of months. She was listening to a talk by uh, a a monk, a monastic who lives in Australia named Ajahn Brahm, um, a very uh, dynamic presence, who put the Four Noble Truths this way. There is happiness. There is a cause of happiness, their happiness is possible, and there is a path leading to happiness. And I thought that was quite lovely and brilliant. I wanted to look at these truths, at least touch on them a bit, in the context of this, of what we're doing here. But one can't bypass the suffering part. It's absolutely essential that one comes to terms with suffering. The Buddha said when he started out his teaching, it was the first discourse after he became enlightened that he shared with his fellow ascetics who he'd been traveling around with for a number of years. He started out with this first truth, there is suffering in life. And he said, If you truly understand suffering and are not afraid of it and come to terms with it and digest it and really see it clearly for what it is, that it is part of life, then you will actually be on the path leading to the end of suffering. Because most of us spend so much of our time avoiding encounters with suffering 
or if we have an encounter trying to get out as fast as we can or somehow be stuck in, "Uh uh-oh, I'm always going to be here. And the more one can skillfully address keeping the heart open, keeping the understanding and compassion that can hold it, and taking our measure of our own pain and sorrow as part of our curriculum, the more we can not only process for ourselves all of the hard stuff, but come through it and see it's possible to, um, to still awaken to joy and well-being. And as I... I forget if I mentioned in here the, the, the five daily reflections. Did I talk about that here? That, did I? Yeah. Every day, contemplate. You will grow old. You will become ill. You will die. Everyone and everything near and dear to us will be separated from us. And we are uh, the heir of our karma, that our actions Uh, create our karma. Mm. This is uh, this is from uh, the mother, Sri Aurobindo's um, uh, partner. He was a great master and the mother was a great teacher uh, in the spiritual community of Oroville. She said, you carry in yourself all obstacles necessary to make your realization perfect. If you discover a very black hole, a thick shadow, you can be sure there is somewhere in you a great light. It is up to you to know how to use the one to realize the other. This is the challenge that we have. Every one of us will be encountering suffering in our life. It's the first truth. There is suffering in life. It's, now, that truth, by the way, does not say all of life is suffering. That would go a bit too far because there is lots of beauty in life, isn't there? There's love. There's sunrises. There's music. There's art. There is compassion there's uh, magnificent um, generosity, all of those things. There's the miracle of everything fitting together in this delicate balance called life on this planet. It's amazing. Like I said before about that Einstein quote, why not see everything as a miracle? It is. And within that, there is suffering in life. There's the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. This is um, from Jennifer uh, Wellwood. This is called The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, Let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? 
Let's grieve our losses fully like human ripe beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel but she is only wild and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Powerful stuff. You might say, oh my God, I thought he was going to talk about happiness here. (laughs) But to really let that in and say, yep, This too is part of life. And how can I take in and somehow open up to the truth and process the measure of pain and sorrow that I've been given? How can that be transformed into well-being, happiness, and joy? This is what the Buddha was talking about that not only is there suffering, but there is a way to process that so that one truly opens up to the deal here, to the way things are, and not getting stuck only in our pain and our sorrow. Now, of course, when we have gone through major losses, this is not something to hurry up and get over. We have to honor the whole process of feeling deeply the pain and the loss and the hurt and the pain. But if we remain stuck there and have it define our lives, then this would be um, an unfortunate way to use this gift that your life Uh, is to you. I wanted to share with you uh, a story about a really inspiring friend of mine that I include in in my book. Her name uh, is Nancy and she is fine with sharing this story. Uh, It is now um, 13 years ago that her daughter, who um, was 14 at the time, took her life. And she was the, uh, the, the sunshine in Nancy's life and was, from all accounts, a really radiant being. And Nancy came to a retreat that um, I was teaching. She'd come to uh, one other retreat before and then she came to the February retreat because 
uh, in February was the anniversary of her daughter's passing. And that year, and every year since, except for this past year when she was in Asia, on the anniversary of her daughter's passing, Julia, we ring the bell down in the lower meadow and ring it 108 times. And uh, so I've gotten to know Nancy um, pretty well. The first, and she would come each year to retreat on that anniversary. The first three years or so, she was just kind of hanging on for dear life, wondering, could she ever make any sense of this, all the anger, all the fear, all the rage, and all the guilt, and all, you can imagine all the different feelings. And... After she processed that, at some point, she started to turn a corner and see, how can I make some sense, not only make some sense, but honor Julia's life? And so she decided to start uh, working with parents of people who had um, lost their children, uh, many to, uh, in the same way as she had. And little by little, she um, saw that she had something to give because she had a beautiful, she's a beautiful being. And over the course of these years, she, ha- she is a radiant being. I just actually, as I'm thinking of her now, I just got a hit of her energy and my whole being just kind of lit up. Oh, Nancy, she's, she's so beautiful and so filled with joy. And this is what she wrote. Oh, this is about five years after that, that happened. She sent me a card, a beautiful card with um, uh, five peasants, uh, Chinese peasants, laughing, many of them, uh, they were toothless, kind of with laughing with big smiles over this little kid who's the, this, the cutest thing in the world, and they were all laughing at the kid. And you open it up, and part of it, she says, um, after some more words, towards the end, she says, I've received a gift that is beyond words. I've witnessed my deepest despair, the darkest most wounded quarters of my heart and learned not to flinch or back away. I rested in love and yes, even tasted joy, all the while still knowing the sorrow of my loss. A few days ago, I held a bereaved mother in my arms as she sobbed. She had lost her son to suicide. I held her to my heart as she held on for dear life. And as I rocked her, it was as if I were rocking Julia, rocking myself, rocking the broken hearts of all beings. In that rocking, in that holding, we were all held in one heart. I have been so blessed. And so she's dedicated her, all her, her work with those parents um, to Julia so that there's some meaning in that. And as I say, she is a radiant being. And every time when we go down and ring the bell, she cries, she weeps. It's not like 
that's all gone, but it doesn't define her. It is one part of her story. And she has found genuine happiness. There's happiness from not flinching or being afraid of the pain and sorrow in the world. And there's happiness that comes from seeing all the goodness in the world. One of the, one of the questions that sometimes people have when they hear awakening joy is, what about all the suffering and the sorrow? How can you, how can you dare to let yourself feel happiness when there's so much sorrow and suffering in the world? This is a very uh, important question. Somebody once said that uh, in one of the first classes, and he said, you know, it's like you're sitting around, we're all just singing kumbaya, you know? And I, we called it the kumbaya factor. Right? <laughs> and I shared with him um, and others since uh, this quote from Howard Zinn, as you might know, the, the author of The People's History of the United States, the real history, not the whitewashed history, where he writes in this essay, The, op- the Optimism of Uncertainty. An optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. If we remember, however, those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. So you don't want to be so bogged down by the weight and the sorrow of the world that you lose your energy to act or you lose your capacity to love. There is happiness. There is a cause of happiness. The second noble truth, the cause of suffering, usually is translated as there is grasping and attachment and craving and getting lost in the gold shivers one way or another. But there is happiness. It is truly possible. And it comes from understanding where real happiness lies, cultivating these wholesome states that we're all imbued with and more and more abiding in that place where our goodness and our love and our wisdom can shine through. I see this a lot as learning more and more to look for the good while seeing all of the dukkha around, all of the suffering, but looking for the good 
and loving goodness. This is a this is a um, an instruction that has been a, a guiding principle in my life for uh, many years. F- that I first heard from um, the great um, guru and somebody who's so impacted me, uh, Neem Karoli Baba, also known as Maharaji. He's Ramdas's guru and. Uh, is the guru in Be Here Now, which if you've read, many people my age have read, uh, that changed my life. And he said, the best form to worship God is every form. And I took that to, uh, to mean as an instruction, keep looking for the God or the good in everything. The more you look for it, the more you will find it. And it's true that if that's the lens that you look through, that's your bias, that's what the brain is biased to look for. If you are looking for how everybody around is a jerk, you'll have ample evidence to confirm your hypothesis. Right? But if you look for the good, you will not only be more likely to see it, but you actually draw it out of others. Isn't that so? When you're around somebody who is seeing all your flaws, everything that's wrong with you, how do you feel? Flawed, don't you? (laughs) Or defensive, closed. Somebody else might know all your flaws, all your weaknesses, but you know that they're looking and just seeing how beautiful you are. How do you feel? Beautiful, don't you? Or as we sometimes say, beautiful. (laughs) But that is drawn right out of us just because that energy, we sense that energy. It's kind of a mysterious thing about energy. It just kind of... Draw it right out, just like when, when Deborah and I were doing her her, uh, her dyad today, and there we were, just kind of like love finding itself, you know. You know, we're each seeing it and just getting more and more bathed in that. That's how it works, and how we can be that way for each other. So there is happiness if we know where to find it and keep looking for it. It is possible, it's absolutely possible, not only to experience the, uh, the, the different levels of happiness, but the highest happiness, real freedom for, in the mind and the heart that's not caught in that contraction, or at least sees the contraction and it doesn't stick. It's possible to really liberate the mind and the heart. That's what the Buddha was talking about. He said, one of one of my favorite quotes, if it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. Very simple. But it is possible, and this is why I teach. If it were not possible to free the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion, I would not tell you to do so. But this is why it is possible, and this is why I teach. Isn't that great news? Uh, The Buddha was committed to telling the truth, right? He was saying it just like it is. It's absolutely possible. Then 
it's important to understand that there is a path leading to happiness. The fourth noble truth, the eightfold path. There is a path leading to the end of suffering and the same way it can be said, there is a path leading to true happiness. What are these elements, this prescription that he said? Many of you are quite familiar with the Eightfold Path, so just take it as a, as a reminder and a good story. Oh yes, this is what sets me in the right direction. There is wise or right understanding. And I, I hope that when you go through the gate, if you've ever been going walk, taking walks through the gate uh, the lower, to the lower part of the, um, uh, the, the campus, that you spin the, uh, the wheel, which has eight spokes on it, each one for one of the eightfold links. It was made, by the way, it was, uh, it was created by uh, the person who did the carousel in the San Francisco Zoo, as, I'm, as I remember. It's really, it's nice. And inside, by the way, inside that prayer wheel, it's a, a, a California prayer wheel, um, that there are um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prayers that people wrote when we first uh, opened up the center and for the first year or so. And so when you're spinning the prayer wheel, you are uh, sending those prayers out to all beings in all directions. So you might as well get a, an extra little hit of joy when you, when you go through the gate. Wise understanding. These are either the word is often translated as right understanding or wise understanding. It's actually the word samma is, uh, means skillful, that which leads to, um, to well-being. Wise understanding is, as we've been seeing, uh, as we've been saying, seeing where happiness really lies, understanding these basic four truths, that there's suffering, cause of suffering, end of suffering, and a path leading. It also is understanding that things don't happen in random order in this world, that there is a karmic unfolding, having some element that this is not a complete random universe, and if you practice something, you be, it becomes more and more who you are. Just like if you practice anger, you become a more and more angry person. If you practice kindness and generosity, that's how you're developing. If you practice mindfulness, that's the most amazing one. If you practice mindfulness, all the other states of well-being follow. But to have some understanding where happiness lies is key in this whole process. That leads to the second truth, which sometimes is called wise thought and uh, other times called wise intention. Same, same thing. Wise intention. That is, once you see where happiness lies, it's understanding that you want to face in that direction. I'm going for it. You know. 
and probably everyone has their own story. If you've been doing this for a while, we all have our own stories of when we decided, I'm going for it. If you're new to it, there's something that has called you here that you haven't been able to ignore that's been calling you your whole life and it's more and more getting in touch with that place inside that says, I want to go for it. Or as I said earlier, every one of us wants to be happy. There's a place in in us that is really rooting for our happiness. Isn't that so? And we might be doing lots of things that lead to unhappiness. Duh, what was I thinking? But it's out of misunderstanding, but we are doing everything. Most Take a look at this yourself. Everything that we do is motivated by the idea, this will make me feel better. Even if it gets a bit misguided. But to go to the source and say, oh, I'm really wanting to feel better. I just didn't understand what was making me feel better. So wise intention is once you see the picture, you're going for it. And in a moment, once you make that decision, you will uh, be facing in that direction. And um, if you feel it deeply, you can't rest until you are completing the trip. <clears throat> As uh, Trungpa Rinpoche said, uh, uh, the uh, spiritual path is fraught with great peril and danger, so one must consider carefully before one's, one embarks on it. But once started, it's best to finish. <laughs> because what's the alternative? Oh, I think I'll cultivate more greed, hatred, and delusion in my life. (laughs) So wise understanding, wise intention, wise thought. And then there's the middle parts of the Eightfold Path. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. Which all have to do with living a life of integrity with what Spring had had mentioned, what I I refer to, what the Buddha referred to as the bliss of blamelessness. As as he says, let me see if I can get it here. Where's the book? For one who leads a virtuous life It is a natural law that remorse will not arise. For one who is free of remorse, it is a natural law that gladness will arise. For one who is glad at heart, it is a natural law that joy will arise. So to live with integrity is not just to be a good guy or a good gal because you're trying to you know, be a saint or holy or something like that. It's because that's where real ease and peace is found. When we are out of alignment, we know, even if nobody else knows, 
we have this thing inside that we're hardwired with called conscience. And it's a pretty good thing that it's there. It's dicey enough even with it being there. But if we can listen to it, we know what, what is going to lead to ease and peace inside. So living with integrity, which I don't know if we'll, we'll have a chance to go into in depth. It's one of the wholesome states that I um, talk about uh, that, we, uh, that we share in the course. In the Bliss of Blamelessness teaching, the Buddha says there's, uh, in one discourse, there's different kinds of happiness. There's the happiness that comes four different kinds, whether or not you've ever meditated. Happiness that comes from being free of debt. This is very practical. Happiness that comes from having enough good fortune that you are, uh, can cover your needs and can be generous with those near you. Happiness that comes from uh, being so prosperous that you can be generous with many others, either, even those that you don't know. And then there's the bliss of blamelessness, that comes when you are completely acting in alignment with your values. And he says in this discourse, compared with the bliss of blamelessness, the first three are not one-sixteenth as potent a source of well-being. I don't know how he figured that out, (laughs) but that's what it says. That's the equation. And when you think about it, of course it's so. You can have all kinds of good circumstances, but if you are not feeling whole, then you're disturbed inside. So he says, look carefully and listen inside and you will discover your own truth. You just have to listen more and more and be honest with yourself as well as being honest with others. So that's the middle path, the middle aspect of the, th- the Eightfold Path, our speech, our action, and our livelihood, doing them from a spirit of non-harming. And then the third area, the rest of the Eightfold Path, is right effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And that has to do with the meditation practice that we're doing here, the heart training, the mind training. This is not so easy to do, but it's even harder to live with clarity and wisdom if we don't train ourselves to listen inside. So he said, take time. The cornerstone of waking up is taking time to turn your awareness inward to really hear the truth of all the voices inside or the, the truth of how all the voices manifest and see which ones are ones that are supporting your well-being and which ones are just coming out of confusion and fear. And the more you can develop that, the more you have that capacity and the courage it takes to just really listen and really be with the moment as it is, then you naturally express the Eightfold Path. Then you see for yourself that there is happiness as well as there is working with suffering. There is a cause of happiness. Happiness is possible. 
So that's what we're doing here. And that's why I see this path as a path of happiness. I'll close with this beautiful passage from Shanti Deva, who wrote The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. As a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death. The treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. The tree that gives shade to us when we roam about scorched by life. The bridge that takes us across the stormy river of life. The cool moon of compassion that calms our mind when it is agitated. The sun that dispels darkness. The butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with the Dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. So let's sit for a moment. As a blind person feels upon finding a pearl in a dustbin, so am I amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. So walking now, let yourself enjoy the night sky. Be present for it. And we'll come back for one last sitting and chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.